Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we found out that WhatsApp are now supporting more than 2 billion users around the world. And they shared that news via their blog. And food giant Unilever has vowed to stop marketing its products to children in order to tackle rising obesity rates. It's also promised to stop using social media stars or celebrities or indeed cartoons who primarily appeal to children under 12. And BP set one of the oil sector's most ambitious targets for carbon carbon emissions just yesterday. BP did not say, however, how it intends to get emissions from its operations and barrels produced to net zero and halve the intensity of emissions by all products it sells, including diesel and petrol. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. Did they set a date? I didn't see a date. No. Okay. So, a target. Yep. It's, I do know it's called Scope 3. And Amazon Chief Executive Jeff Bezos... Um, if you didn't already know, the world's wealthiest person, has bought a Beverly Hills mansion um, for $165 million, which is roughly £127 million. And that price is believed to be the highest in an L.A. area residential real estate transaction. Do you think it's got a pool? I imagine it's got everything. <laughs> You name it, Heather, it's got it, I'm sure. But this week we're talking about a subject that, that was prompted by a, an article I read um, and, it, and it was about personal and professional personas. All the world, world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. Remember that quote from As You Like It, Heather? I William do. Shakespeare. It got me thinking, um, you know, we've been encouraged to be personal in the transaction to get sales by winning new business by by being personal by being you but then how much you do you give where is there a boundary have we blurred the boundaries and all of these social media stars that we've been talking about you know is is there a personal boundary for them or, or is their whole life laid out for everyone to see so I set this challenge as our topical discussion this week. And I'm interested to know what you think, Heather. Well, I think that you just said, um, how much of yourself do you give? I think the, the flip side of that is how much do others take? How Good much point. do people expect of you? So whether it's on a small scale, whether it's, you know, you having two Twitter accounts or two Facebook accounts or... Um, you know, Tracy on the business community versus Tracy on Callum Brat, you know, all of these different persona. Yeah. But actually, sometimes there must be a line and we we might overstep the line in what we want from people. Very good point in um, case, yeah. I mean, Harry and Meghan's story. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's the, if people own their personality, isn't it? Yeah. The comments that people absolutely. have been making. And, and it's not even... That, it, I mean, it's that. And this isn't about... This isn't about them... I mean, they are royal... Members of the royal family, of course. So, that, you know, that brings its own challenges as well. But as individuals, they are now scrutinised on every count. What their baby is wearing, you know, whether they're attending a JP Morgan event and getting paid money whether they're in discussions with is it google that um harry's supposed to be in discussion with well those are business transactions which he as a businessman is entitled to make uh so where is he a member of the royal family where is he a businessman where is he a dad 
when it where is he your husband um and yeah and we you know we've also i mean people like uh, i think of katie price you know before we talked about influencers a few weeks ago you know she was one of the first people that had um jordan as a persona now Oh yeah, I'd almost forgotten about that. Yeah, yes, and yeah. She's, I mean, she's re she's rebranded herself as Katie Price now, but Jordan was a persona. But is Katie Price a persona? Exactly, and and actually, does it matter? Because yeah. you know, at home, she's a mum, and whether she's getting married in a Cinderella carriage and sitting on a throne or whatever it is, she's a mum, and so. What does she want us to have? What do we expect? And where is that line? And that's the thing I think is really interesting. So a bit closer to home then, then the question that a lot of business people will have is, you know, you've got a personal Facebook account and say one of your clients requests to be your friend. Do you accept? Mm, I Or a colleague? Yeah. I've, I've never been employed since I've used Facebook, so I don't know. Um, but I don't use, I mean, yes, okay, I mention if I'm out doing something, but I'm very careful about what I put on Facebook on my personal page. Now I run my business and I'm a sole director, so it's me. Yeah. So I need to make sure that I'm not posting pictures of me drunk on a Saturday night or... There are plenty of those pictures. Not drunk <laughs> on a... Yeah, oh, they're all on my phone. But I might share a picture of a glass of wine or I might share a picture of me having lunch somewhere or... But actually, I I don't give... So you're a coach as well. So yeah. it, would you accept a coaching client as a friend on Facebook? No, because I think that that's... a. a, a a conflict that's a clear boundary yeah, yeah. i think so i th- yeah i think it is um if i am no longer coaching them i think that's that's fine um as a counselor you, you certainly wouldn't be doing that so it's drawing those lines but actually i'm mostly talking about what i'm doing as yeah. heather so then look, looking at Twitter, you, you have little choice over who can follow you. I mean, you can block people if you mm-hmm. so wish, but largely it's about people finding you and following you. And in this article, it, it talks about, you know, do you have a, a business social media account and a private one? And it made a really good point in there in that, you know, if you, you, you spend some time developing relationships with people using social media but then those people get to find out that there's like another tier of social media account that they're not included in. Then that becomes incredibly awkward. Yeah, but yes, I know I know exactly what you mean. But if you just think, if we forget social media, you know, we have friends and we have acquaintances and we have family members and rules are different. You know, you'll have one set of friends and the way that you are with them is different to the way you are with another set of friends. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not getting the real you. It's just you're, yeah. you're finding some commonality. So actually, if you decide on one social media account to put out something and on another something else, professional versus personal, well, I think that's okay. Yeah. Uh, as long as you're not misleading people. I think that's the thing. Yeah. What do, what what are your rules around social media? Uh, pretty much like you, um, I I don't put anything too controversial on on there. Um, if if I do, and somebody thinks what I've put is controversial, then that's actually 
what I genuinely think and um, yep. you know but I, I'm not aiming to be controversial in social media but having um, been a therapist previously I, I wouldn't accept a current client as a, a friend on Facebook but I have um, so some people that I've coached have moved on to be friends yeah. Yeah. so um, yeah then then we do become friends on Facebook but yeah, I, I I tend to be try to be the same person, whether you meet me in person or on social media. I'm not I'm not putting a filter. We were talking before about filters that that people use. Oh, on photos. <laughs> on photos, yes. and I I won't do it. I won't post a, a picture of me filtered on social media just in case I come to meet that person who's seen that filtered photo in person, and they go, <laughs> "Who are you?" Yeah. You, you age significantly yeah so so my photos on on social media are warts and all i i do sometimes if i've taken the selfie and it does look particularly awful i, I don't necessarily post it i might take a hundred selfies <laughs> before yeah, i exactly. find the, right the best one. one yeah of course I, yeah I, I don't think it's an easy thing to follow but um i think you know being yourself and and going about getting business by being yourself isn't a bad thing and I think it just depends if, if your natural self is actually something that wouldn't get you business, then maybe you need to rethink how you use social media. Absolutely. And let's make no bones about it. If somebody crops up in conversation, if you encounter somebody, you're going to Google them. Yeah. That's what we do now. I mean, if you don't know, you know, if you if somebody says, I wonder what time it is in Outer Mongolia, somebody will go, oh, I don't know, I'll just Google it. Oh, it's, you know, we, everything. So the first thing you're going to do, what's his name? What's her name? Oh, here we go. Right. Oh, well, that's not Twitter, her. Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, yeah. And, yeah, newspaper I mean, we articles. We do that when we, yeah. we re- research people that we profile. We're getting what is out there. Now, they, they or somebody will have put all of that out there on their behalf or about them. Yeah, it's really interesting when we've we've done some searches for people um, and and I'm thinking of somebody in particular that we were going to profile last week, but the the lovely children from St Mary's uh, took up half of the show rather beautifully with with their own stories. And that person we were profiling clearly had had the internet cleansed of anything. Mm -hmm. There must have been some work gone on there because every single story looked like it had been placed you, you know and, yeah, and yeah. you sort of read these things about um if there's any stories on the internet that you don't like you have to flood it with lots of other things yes, and, and it seemed it seemed quite clear from researching that particular person that some work had gone on there mm. yeah. it, it just didn't feel real did it you no. didn't feel like you were finding out about the real person no well, they're quite high profile and so my expectation was that i'd be flooded with stuff and it was actually going to be quite onerous to hone in on certain areas where actually there was very little put out. It was bland, yeah, but it was that can't be all the same everywhere, wasn't yeah, yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And that didn't feel real either. I wasn't. I lost interest in profiling that person because I didn't feel like I was getting some personality no. through. And, and I think we also have to remember that nobody is perfect. You know, we are flawed individuals. In yeah. and so I would expect if I typed in Tracy Jones into into Google, for example, other search engines are available. Um, that you, okay. I think you'll find an American sports person. Oh, really? A gentleman called Tracy Jones. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll go wrong filter. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, not everything is going to be perfect about everybody, and of course, it shouldn't be. But you don't want it to be, and that's probably why the profile that we were researching last week didn't appeal because there was there was nothing of interest. It was all perfect. 
And I, I'm always suspicious of, say, the Amazon review or any other online review when it's all completely 100% perfect. Yeah. I want some bad comments from people and I want to judge them myself. Yeah. So somebody might make a bad comment about a product, but it's nothing to do with the actual product and more to do with the delivery service yeah. or something like that. Or, or somebody just didn't like it for whatever personal reason. I want to see the bad as well as the good. In fact, it's what I look at first so I can make my own judgment. Well, I'm, I'm always suspicious if it's too good. <laughs> I look at that middle ground, you know, the people who say, you know, this restaurant is amazing, you know, John and the team are fantastic, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's their mum and their auntie and Mary and whatever. And then the people who go, this was shockingly terrible and, you know, there were rats in the kitchen. Well, actually, it's that middle ground. That's where I'm going to get my sense of them or a business. So, yeah, it's, it, it's tricky. I don't know if it's, going to get any easier no i don't think we've got an answer to this i think you just have to find a way that works for you at the time of recording the government cabinet reshuffle is taking place Uh, so who knows who will be holding the various posts um this time tomorrow items are popping up left right yeah absolutely so it's really difficult to keep on top of other news more importantly i've just had a notification on my phone to say my flowers have arrived Oh, there, there we go. Everything's oh, all right. From your from your uh, secret admirer. Yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. Anyway, I was so, very excited. So, about that. so, notwithstanding the fact that all of that is happening, some of the other news items that we've picked up on this week uh, include, for example, um, a total uh, of fifty-two chain retailers. Um, form the British Retail Consortium and they have written to the Treasury um, to request an overhaul of the business rates um, structure, largely because the high street, as we all know, has been suffering in recent years. And whilst apparently business rates accounts for about £40 billion for the Treasury, um, figures show that in in 2019, around 60,000 job losses existed within the retail sector in 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 2019 so the likes of asda b&q greggs and summers say that the system is broken uh, and that it needs to be reviewed otherwise the high street will die for good i don't know about you i i, I think um that would help but i think there's more issues than just the rates I, yeah i agree and one of the other things of course is rates is just one overhead rent And a lot of town centres don't, you know, like the councils wouldn't have a say over the rents of a private landlord. Yeah, and I think the other thing, and certainly my experience um, with my involvement with um, being involved with Beard in Oswestry Business Improvement District, is absent landlords. When a shop is empty, that property often forms part of a property portfolio for a pension fund or an investment fund of some kind. So it's got real estate value. Yeah. So as long as that's going to be appreciating, because generally speaking, property over the the long term will always appreciate, um, they don't really care. Um, So, yeah, that's the rent. Take it or leave it. Um, And so it's more than just the rates. But I think it's really interesting that they've pulled together uh, to say, look, you need to look at this, guys, and you need to look at it properly. Uh, we're, we're not just grumbling for the sake of grumbling. This this is broken. So uh, interesting one and one to watch. What have you got, Tracy? Um, a publication from ONS from last week, the Personal and Economic Wellbeing in the UK report. It was published in February, but it's about um, 
well-being in the UK for quarter three 2019, so July to September. Uh, it's grim reading, actually. Life satisfaction fell in quarter three compared with the year before as concerns about future employment prospects grew. It's the first time since they started measuring it in 2011 that both life satisfaction and feeling that things done in life are worthwhile significantly fell when compared with the year before. Average anxiety ratings remained at an elevated level in the quarter, with around 10.6 million people reporting high anxiety. Uh, People's concerns about the general economic outlook continued to grow, reaching their highest level since records began in 2011. Expectations about the economy were reflected in real household spending, which grew at its lowest rate since the end of 2016. And on average, people spent less on cars in quarter three than they did in 2016, with spending on recreation and culture and utilities growing more slowly over the same time. Sorry, that's all a bit miserable news, but... um, I, th- I think the state of the nation, for me, and the, and 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 how people are feeling, and the well-being index, in many ways, is way more important than GDP or any other monetary mm-hmm. measure. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think there's you know some real warning flags um, yeah. that are being waved there. Yeah, as employers, we need to really be mindful of that because of course people bring all of that into work um, inevitably Um, on a slightly more positive note (laughs) sorry about that We've we've talked a lot about the gender pay gap, um, female representation on boards. Well, the FTSE 100 um, has announced that one in three board positions in the UK's biggest companies is now held by a woman. Um, a review called the Hampton Alexander Review uh, found that currently on boards in the FTSE 100, 349 women sit, um, which is is fantastic. Although. It says that it highlighted a lack of women in senior and executive roles. Um, So there's a bit of a balance in terms of finance directors. So finance directors are most likely to be men, whereas women are more likely to be HR directors. So there's there's imbalance uh, in different areas. But overall, um, this kind of 33% is a really positive start. And... um, then business secretary Andrea Ledson said, <laughs> "Then yeah, she's gone." <laughs> um, that that businesses had achieved uh, the one in three target voluntarily and without the need for legislation or fines. Uh, so, imagine you know what more could be done. So, I think the message there is keep on keeping on, uh, and everybody will be happy. Um, don't you know? Don't make us bring out the you know the big the big guns to to make you do it so really i think that's a really positive news Uh, and the report itself is if you like reading reports is interesting reading um with a small i okay and if you didn't already know then the rules for living working traveling and doing business in the uk and eu will change from the first of january 2021 So far, we don't know a great deal of details. However, I did stumble across a resource on gov.uk. I was paying my car tax, actually. And uh, after I'd done that, this um, little notice popped up and saying, do you want to check how you need to prepare for 1st of January? Okay, I'll have a look. And uh, it's a a massive questionnaire. It goes through, uh, it says a few questions on here, but... There's quite a lot of questions about the way that your business works or, you know, as a family, whether you're traveling and what your intentions are. 
what type of business you are, whether you export, import. And then it gives you a summary of the things that you need to consider. It doesn't give you full details. But actually, I was quite surprised. Uh, I, I did it for one particular small organisation that I worked for. And I almost had a little panic attack when I started to read just how many things I would have to consider, even though this organisation didn't export or import. OK. So it's worth taking a look on. There, the transition period is only for this year. It will end on the 31st of December 2020. So you really do need to start looking, even if all the detail isn't there yet. Actually, at this point, I'm sorry, with the B word that we've avoided for, for as long as we could, as a business, you really do need to see if there's any impact. Even if you don't import or export, go on, do the questionnaire, it, may, it might be that it just impacts your choice of where you go on holiday or, or some other plans that you've got um, to do business with with a company overseas. Go on there now. We'll put the link for that and anything else that we mention on our blog, which is on the website with our podcast at thebusiness.community. You're listening to The Business Community on Callan FM. And now I'm going to talk about psychopaths. I discovered a book. <laughs> As you do. Yeah, I discovered a book on my Kindle while I was working away a couple of weeks ago, uh, alone in my hotel room, reading a book about psychopathic cultures. <laughs> I made sure my bedroom door was locked and my window is closed. <laughs> um, it, it's actually a very, very good book, and that's why I wanted to bring it to you. It might not seem like talking about psychopaths is necessarily directed, um, related to business, but read this book and you'll find out Ooh. it's more closely related than you think. The book is called Psychopathic Cultures and Toxic Empires. It's written by Will Black. Uh, I first discovered him on Twitter. I, I, I was following him on Twitter and then sort of he mentioned one of his books. I followed the link and here I am. He's got a background in social anthropology and working with specialist psychiatric services and also in journalism. So um, I'll launch straight in and... Did you know that the proportion of those with psychopathic traits is greater in certain professions? Banking, law, media. Oh, really? Yes. And it, it is, and I'm quoting directly from the book here, it is chilling to consider the possibility that there may be more psychopaths in positions of power within our communities than psychopathic patients on psychiatric wards. Um, because if they do get manage to get admitted to um, a mental health facility, it is the goal of the mental health team, apparently, to get rid of them as quickly as possible. They don't want psychopaths in the mental um, facility, mental health facility, because of the harm they can do in there. What, so is it catching or that they no. might injure or... No, it's not, and it's not to do with violence. Um, it's very interesting here. It's about their ability to manipulate situations and people. Okay. Okay. It's a very, um, very, very interesting book. Even, even if all you do is read the introduction, which has got me hooked. It was absolutely fascinating, the introduction. I, I haven't finished the book yet, but the introduction, I felt like, wow, it really blew me away. Um, the, because, again, quoting from the book here, it says that um, it was received wisdom for many years that psychopaths can mimic empathy but cannot truly empathise. But actually, they found out they have the ability to switch on empathy at will. And, uh, and so 
they've studied psychopaths mostly who've committed violent crimes because they're the ones that are in captivity. Right, yeah. Um, But now they've started to search for psychopaths in other areas like banks, trading floors, media companies, political parties. And um, we, we become aware then of society's ability to challenge and control psychopaths is quite limited. Also interested to see that research in psychopaths only came of age after World War II. And the thinking is that people who would now be described as psychopathic were actually probably quite influential during other turbulent and brutal times in history. So so what I'm getting from that is that for whatever reason, my misconception, misperception is that psychopaths are violent yeah. and they aren't so, always. And and the, the, the perception that we've got is that they're the knife-wielding killers of Hollywood. But actually... Um, a lot of psychopaths are in quietly secure positions within society where they can exert maximum control. And violence is, and, and you know, serial killers or whatever, mm. is only one small aspect. And presumably, you don't have to be a psychopath to be a serial killer. Presumably not, mm. no. Um, the... There was, he also referred in there to a show that was about psychopaths, and I haven't made a note of what it was, but they did, they listed this this TV show um, where they were doing an analysis of uh, psychopathic professions. So from the top, you're more likely to find them as bankers, lawyers, media personnel, salespeople, and surgeons. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And interestingly enough, politicians isn't on there, but. He made the note to say that actually no politician completed the survey. <laughs> <laughs> they, they also did an analysis of um, newspaper readers. And um, guess which newspaper showed the highest level of psychopathic attributes, which readers of which newspaper? Based on what you've just said, I'm going to say the FT. Yes. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> So I won't go into any more detail. You've obviously got a discovery to share yourself. But uh, if you're interested, and it, it's not it's not gruesome in the way that, you know, some of the programmes that, that are on uh, Netflix and Amazon, for yeah, example. Bloodthirsty sort yeah, of. Yeah, it's not that. It's actually really, really getting you to think about how people are actually using their psychopathic traits to, to move into positions of power and how they're all around us. <laughs> I'll leave this uh, little quote with you. Psychopaths get through life with superficial charm and are able to con, control and intimidate people without guilt. The peculiar qualities of ruthlessness, sadism, charm, deceit, manipulativeness and a need to control makes it possible for psychopaths to treat victims appallingly whilst maintaining the trust, support and respect of others. So there you go. Okay, right. <laughs> so that we is um, Psychopathic Cultures and Toxic Empires by Will Black. Heather, what did you discover this week? Well, it's interesting that we're talking about perception and, um, you know, making those judgments about what a definition of a psychopath is. I was at an event last night, a CIPD event here at uh, Glyndor University. I'm a member of the CIPD and don't use my membership to its full potential. So anybody out there who is... Um, is paying for a membership of any professional body or organisation, get out and use You're it. You're changing that this year, though, yes, aren't you? Yes, I really, yeah, I really am, because 
it's just a missed opportunity. And, and actually, um, I've already been to a few events this year where I've met people that I've never met before. And I do a lot of networking. So actually, it's great to engage with people. And often they're like-minded individuals because you're at the same events. I'm going to one tonight that um, I'm sure we'll have some really interesting people at it. But last night's event, um, it was the title of the event that attracted me. And it was the title is The Delusion of Inclusion. Okay. All right. Okay. Wonder what that's all about. The speaker was a guy called Shaquille Butt. Uh, he is uh, a non-executive director of the CIPD, and he runs his own HR business called HR Hero for Hire. Now he um, is Pakistani, in his fifties. Uh, and he told his story. Well, he, he actually gave us a bit of a history lesson. Um, and he told his story, the story of his family, and how he was, through the colour of his skin, he was deemed to be different, uh, not as good as. Uh, and he wasn't only talking about um, inclusivity in terms of uh, ethnicity. He was talking about disability, uh, gender, gender identity, faith, all of those things. And the talk itself was really, really interesting because he started to, through time, he started to get us to realise that actually when we, when we think we're being inclusive, we don't know if we are. The only way you can find out is if you're being inclusive is if the people you are including feel included. Okay. Uh, do you ask then? How do you find out? Well, and, and that was one of the things that came out in the discussions at the end of the session because... He, he asked um, the question, are you a racist? Okay. That's quite a ballsy question to ask a room full of people. The room had people uh, had um, a lot of uh, Chinese students. Uh, there were a lot of white people who live in and around the Wrexham area. And then we've got this, this guy who's um, second generation Pakistani here right so someone somebody says are you a racist and nobody wanted to speak but of course I spoke up as you might expect and I said right am I an intentional racist no am I an accidental racist and this not about making excuses then then maybe because he and he quite rightly said we can't stop thinking in color we can't because when I look at you, I can see the colour of your hair. I can, you know, I, I see you as an individual. And if your skin is a different colour to mine, I'm going to notice that. Just, just, and even if your skin's the same colour as mine, I'm going to notice that. Yeah. It's, it's what I do with that. And that, that was the thing. The talk was, was just absolutely fascinating. It posed more questions than answers. But it also um, gave me permission to ask people. Why don't we ask people? Because we're afraid that it might appear inappropriate. Well, to be honest, if somebody asked me what I thought or what I felt about something, from any perspective, at least they're engaging with me. Yeah. And and, and I thought that was a really big lesson to learn. He also talked about, um, uh, gave some really interesting statistics. Uh, for example, 50% of the Bangladeshi communi community in this country work in catering. And 25% of Uber drivers are Pakistani. Right, so these are people who fit, fit, rightly or wrongly, in a profile, in an area, because that's what 
they're deemed to be that's their place yeah and actually we should be challenging that it's you know those those stats don't stack up and, and nor should they uh it was just it was just so you're amazing. saying that that they they're taking those roles and those those positions because that's what we've deemed appropriate for them um, that's and that's the space for and them. that they have been set uh, you, you yeah be an Uber. There's nothing wrong with being an Uber driver. Of course, there isn't. Um, and some people, you know, people aren't Uber drivers forever necessarily. But that's that's as good as you're going to get. Yeah, you you stick with that because don't aim for the stars because you ain't going to get there because of the colour of your skin or because of your ethnicity, because of your gender, because of your this, because of your that. And you say, and that's not necessarily a conscious nope. thing. It's it's, it's, it's conditioning. Just, yeah. It's conditioning, and it's it's subconscious. Um, it was an absolutely fascinating What was the name talk. of the speaker again? His name is Shaquille Butt, S-H-A-K-I-L, Butt, B-U-T-T. If you Google him, um, you'll find lots of talks that he's given. Um, and I just want to share with you one quote that he mentioned. And, and the late Joe Cox, uh, she said, we have far more in common than that that divides us. And actually, the message that he was saying is, let's find that commonality, because then the differences will pale into insignificance. Our profile this week is um, somebody who possibly has the best name of all the people that we've profiled. Better than Dame Snowball. Well, yeah, Dame Stiller Snowball, that's that's a great name. But this one, wait till you hear me pronounce it in my rubbish Portuguese accent. Okay, go on then. Um, which I'm not even going to... Antonio Mota de Souza Horta Osorio. That's quite a name. How you fit all of that on a form, I do not know. I think he misses out the motto de Souza generally. Well, yes, okay, but actually, <laughs> if it's his legal name, I think he should be, as he introduces himself and shakes your hand, as he welcomes you to um, Lloyd's Banking Group, because that is where he works. He is the chief executive. Um, he's a Portuguese banker. He was born in 1964 and um, was born in Lisbon. Um, he's the eldest son of a lawyer and table tennis champion. And also the grandson of um, a lawyer, economist and politician. So I guess um, that, that, that law side of things was what um, moved him towards uh, his, his professional career. He graduated in management and business admin from the Catholic University of Portugal in Lisbon and has worked in, with Citibank, um, Goldman Sachs, uh, Santander, uh, Banco Santander, and he joined Lloyd's Banking Group in 2011. January. January 2011, um, which is was at the height of the uh, the banking um, s- crash, yeah. disaster. What a time! What a time! I suppose you could work on the basis that if he was, if he could survive that, he could survive anything. But the reason we're talking about him is partly because of that whole story, because he was working in a very, very pressured um, environment with a huge responsibility in a failing bank. And that took a great toll on his mental health and his personal well-being. And that's the thing that he's 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 almost most well known for because he in that position actually had to take eight weeks off work to recover and he t- he talks um widely about 
what he experienced and what tips he would give to anybody who's experiencing that sort of um, situation. Yeah, he was in the press recently just going going over that story again as part of a, a mental health awareness campaign and, and that's hence why he, he came to our attention. Uh, it's the most high-profile sick leave in the city that um, yeah. he, he had. And and I I, th- I welcome that that level of um, openness from somebody so senior, and it's what's refreshing is he had that sick leave. He he suffered from exhaustion and stress in a senior position. Yep. So sometimes you hear of people who are now in senior positions who share the troubles that they had in the past, and and but they've worked their way through it, and and you you sometimes you know wonder well actually given the the stigma attached to mental health issues, did they actually tell anybody as they were climbing yeah, the ladder? Yeah. This guy was at the top of the ladder and it, he had a, a, a very public uh, personal crisis and that and the, he's prepared to share that. And he's gone on to improve the bank's financial performance. He's turned the bank around. They've returned to profitability and, and it, it, it's met um, all of the targets for tougher regulatory requirements under his leadership after this personal crisis. Mm-hmm. That, for me, is what makes it a really positive story. He had a very public crisis at the height of his career and then still went on to have great success with this career as well. Uh, yeah, totally. And I think what's really interesting, he's, he, he said... He knew, and this is this is part of the challenge, he knew that they were in crisis, but he couldn't talk to anybody about it because, of course, that would have caused the collapse of the bank. You know, I mean, yeah. so he was in this this absolute powder keg where he had to, he, he, had, he was internalising it and it was going round and round in his head. It stopped him sleeping. He became absolutely exhausted. Um, and he had... Um, 65,000 employees, never mind investors. It was a massive pressure. But as 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 a, a, an output from his experience, he then started to reevaluate the importance of mental health for those employees. And they as an organisation work very hard, as are more and more organisations as this moves up the agenda in terms of employee wellbeing. Really interesting story, really interesting story. Whether he's a good banker or not, you know, I don't know which bit of his his expertise is the bit that has helped him um, overcome and succeed, but uh, just a really interesting story. So, yeah, if you want to read more about this, there's quite a lot of articles. Uh, there was one, the one that caught our eye was uh, on the BBC a few weeks ago. Uh, look out for Antonio Otto Osario if you don't know how to spell it. Just um, type in Chief Exec of Lloyds Banking Group and you'll find him. <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with the business community on Calon FM. You've been listening to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. <laughs>